flavor is is the most important thing like it has to be has to taste good has to be delicious i think when you're young you kind of get caught up in like 15 years ago like is is this molecular enough does it have enough techniques on it does it does it need a foam does it need a sphere or something and then you you look back on all that stuff now and you're like oh jesus Christ, like <laughs> this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep The beautiful thing about working as a chef is the foundation of cookery that can provide a springboard to learn just about any cuisine. There are some chefs that, after learning their craft, try their hand at global cuisines to much acclaim without the cultural connection, but rather through influence, collaborations and experiences while traveling. How hard is it to translate different cuisines and what does it take to be able to do that with multiple very different cuisines? Ben Sears is the head chef of Ezra in Potts Point, Sydney. Ben, how are you going? Yeah, very good, thank you. That's a, that's a scary introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, your career is um, really earmarked by all sorts of cuisines. Not that long ago, you were one of the most influential uh, chefs of Korean cuisine in Australia. And now uh, you're at Ezra, you're doing food based on the food of Tel Aviv. Tell us, tell us about Tel Aviv, the food of Tel Aviv and what you're doing. So Ezra was started by two guys called Nick and Kirk, who are the owners and who work on the floor there. And uh, they spent a little bit of time there. They, I can't remember exactly who worked where, but they kind of worked at Palomar and stuff in London and then and then got a taste for it and they spent a little bit of time in Tel Aviv and they they really loved it. And then they came back here and did some other things in the meantime with this idea that, you know, they'd love to open a love to open something that, you know expressed that really unique hospitality that you get in Tel Aviv. What's your experience of the food of Tel Aviv? Is it something you've cooked before? Oh, uh, I I went there when I was younger and I, I did like it. It's not something that I thought that I'd be doing. To be honest, I kind of I kind of needed a job post COVID. <laughs> and and uh this is something that came up and it was something that I have been interested in. And I spent a little bit of time kind of thinking about, you know, would, would I have anything to say about this subject or what, what, what is it that you could offer? What sort of food are you cooking there? Can you give us an idea of, of the cuisine? Yeah. I think one of the, one of the most interesting things about Tel Aviv is that it's, it's like, yeah, you know, people throw this around a lot, but it is a it is a very much a melting pot. You know, it's in a lot of ways it's only been there since you know what whatever it is seventy years. So like everyone's kind of not everyone, but a lot of people are from somewhere else. And there's all these like North African influences, and there's the Mediterranean thing, and there's there's you know Jewish food from Iraq and from India, and there's so it's there's a lot of kind of eclectic things that have fallen into this, you know, the, the melting pot analogy, like a lot of a, these things kind of come together to create something that's quite interesting. 
quite distinct, I think. What are you What are you cooking at the moment? What's What's some dishes that really um, stand out on the menu? Um, uh, a couple of the signatures, I guess, are like like uh, we do a potato latke with with braised silver beet and date jam and sour cream and salmon roe, which is kind of takes a little bit of that Ashkenazi thing as well. Some like New York deli energy. But then it's got the some date and spice and stuff in it. And then there's a there's a swordfish that's marinated in chickpea miso, which is kind of a I guess a little nod to the whole Korean Japanese thing that I was doing previously. <laughs> served with served with like sesame and tahini and stuff. Sesame is the that's the running theme throughout my career, I think. Abundant amounts of sesame. <laughs> well, you just briefly touched on the fact that you know your past was Korean and Japanese, and with Moon Park and and Paper Bird, you um, brought contemporary, certainly Korean, to the table for so many in Sydney. Take us back to when Moon Park started. How did how did that begin? Um, same thing. I needed a job, uh, no, so I was the head chef of. I was the head chef of Claude's and for anyone who doesn't know my partner Unhian is also a, a chef, is a much better chef than me and she's Korean. So we we talked about it as something that we could do in the future for a while and then Claude's closed and it was like maybe maybe now is the time. And it came together really quickly. I think because we were amazingly naive and didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, like super green. And so we opened a Korean restaurant in Redfern. And, you know, it did really well. It was really well received. Um, it's not something, before we opened the restaurant, it wasn't something that I, you know, I had a Korean partner, but I wasn't, like I'd been there, but I, I wasn't, an expert in any sense, you know, I think it's really, care you have to be really careful about like claiming expertise in something. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of it, and it's the same with Ezra. A lot of it's, you know, I think the thing I like about it is the opportunity to learn about something that you don't know about while getting paid for it. It's quite good. You find out, find out all these cool, you know, I, I had no idea about, you know, the different regional, different, like the regional variations in Korean cuisine are quite interesting. You know, the difference between like, this is always like the South of South Korea versus the North of South Korea. And then North Korea, North Korean food again is like, different again and there's all these things that you wouldn't really get in North Korea and they filter down a little bit because it's that's the nature of, of things but and you know same with uh, North African Jewish food I mean who knew but it's amazing like, like all these crazy braises like tripe braised in harissa and stuff and it's it's unreal whether it's something that you could sell to people in Potts Points is <laughs> is that that's a that's kind of another 
another tightrope that you have to walk. But yeah, it's it's cool to it's cool to like find out about all these. Jeremy, it's a big world. Well, Moon Park really captured the attention of the media and and so many people in that upstairs um, site in uh, Redfern. Do you have any memories of that time that you can tell us about? It was genuinely shocking. I mean, you went there early on, so you would know, but if anyone didn't, it was literally like a concrete, but we, I think we set it up for like $80,000, which if you know anything about opening restaurants is like, like that's the chair budget for an average restaurant. Like in 2021, it's, it's looking back, it's like a joke that we managed to even open the doors, but, um, it was, it was absolutely like, I think, I think that was part of the charm as well was just this, it was almost like an anti-restaurant. <laughs> there was, there was, you know, tables and, and chairs and a menu, but there wasn't much else. And we set it up with Ned Brooks, who's a friend of mine, who's a wine, wine importer. And so he did front of house and, and did the wine list. And so the thing about it, like, obviously it, it kind of eschewed any notions of formality in restaurants. It was really like bare bones. And then, you know, it was something kind of that people, I guess, hadn't seen, like people taking a stab at Korean food, but elevating it is not the right word, but just presenting it in a different context, I guess. And it's a, like, the thing is, if you go to Korea, there's, there's places that serve Korean food like that. So it's not like, it's just presenting what I've seen here. Um, and, you know, Un and I can both cook, I think. And, you know, Ned, Ned was really knowledgeable on his side. And so I think the, I do think the foundations were really solid just in terms of the product. And maybe that surprised people as well. You know, you walk up the stairs into this really like con- concrete bunker and, and then you actually have, you know, the context could be surprising. And yeah, it was really well received, which was amazingly surprising. You mentioned you love to learn on the go and uh, in the jobs that you take. Well, tell us about the food and the kitchen and some of the um, dishes that didn't work or did and did work during that time at Moon Park. Yeah, things that didn't work include all the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the, I said, I mentioned earlier, like we didn't really know what we were getting into and we were super green. Like we, we like a week out of opening, like, we realized that we didn't have any gas in the kitchen. And so we just went and bought like two induction stoves from Kmart and we cooked on that for three months waiting for AGL to install a, a gas meter. Like, like it was, it was absolutely like completely done on the fly. Um, yeah, there were dishes in the early days where, I think the interesting thing for me actually was like I I was probably I'd just come out of Claude's and so all all my experience up to that point was quite formal, quite fine dining. 
uh, and then some of the things that I tried that were probably based more on that, like trying to push Korean food into that, you know, I, I try things that were more, I guess, fine dining cooking, at like, but with Korean ingredients kind of squeezed in and it, it just didn't work. It didn't work at all. It, you just lose the, you lose a lot of the context and the, does that make sense? Like, like the the way you eat something is really important. The way something is presented and the way it's, you know, if you like, you can have all the Korean ingredients and stuff, but if it's, if it's still like a piece of sous vide meat with a sauce and a protein and stuff, you're still coming at it from that really Western perspective, I guess. And it kind of, like it's super interesting having to learn stuff, but also I guess having to unlearn some stuff as well. Like, like the 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 way that you've been doing things for the last you know ten years may not actually be you know the only way, or even necessarily the best way. Especially once you once you're changing contexts and stuff. Once you uh, worked out the way to serve and, and cook the food, what, what were one or two dishes that you think you really nailed at that time in Moon Park? Yeah, to be honest, all the dishes that people tell me about now that they loved were all stuff that wouldn't put on the menu. So. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken, the, 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 the stupid chicken was good. Like the chicken that followed me around for the next five years was like one of those things that was just a happy accident, like, literally like thrown together in an afternoon. Um, and people still talk about that now. So that's nice. Uh, yeah, I think I'm trying to remember something that I put on the menu that was good. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing with, with cooking Korean food with your partner, who's a chef who's Korean. It's like, yeah, it's not, she she had home ground advantage the whole time. She isn't. Well, well, tell us about one or two of her dishes that you think were a real star at Moon Park. Yeah, so she she do like we used to do a a a john which is like a Korean pancake of zucchini and mussels, and it's it's something that her grandmother used to make for her and it's it's kind of like a parjon but instead of instead of scallions it has shredded zucchini and it's it's quite rustic in a way but it's super delicious and it's it's one of those things where like i guess that that's like the flip side to like learning about something as opposed to like growing up with it is it doesn't matter how many books you read like you're never gonna unless you grew up with granny making you know pancakes for you every time you went around to a house like there's stuff that you just can't there's stuff that you can't which doesn't invalidate the other stuff it's just it just means that there's and maybe part of the strength of moon park was like having those two different perspectives i guess take us back to the early days when you first realized that chefing was your career how did you get lured to the industry uh, I started out as a, I, I, 
I was a kitchen hand at the Pancake Parlor, which is a family restaurant in Melbourne, kind of like like Pancake Pancake on the Rocks in Sydney, I guess. Um, I I went to art school. I didn't really love it, and I I just dropped out because I was like, you know, it's not this is not really for me. And it's also it's the sort of thing where you're like, what am I even going to do with this if I, you know, that. So I was a bit lost, and then I I got a job as a just because I needed to do something. I got a job as a kitchen hand at the pancake parlor, and I spent a couple of years kind of working my way up through the kitchen there. And then my mom was like, "Well, if you're going to cook, like, why don't you do an actual apprenticeship instead of working at the pancake parlor?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, no, knock on the pancake parlor if anyone." <laughs> it's it's pretty good. Funnily enough, the guy who owns it comes in sometimes, Simon, who who I don't, says he remembers me, but I don't think he does. But <laughs> like, just just to show that you know, time is a flat circle and everything else. Um, but uh, yeah, so. I decided to start an apprenticeship and then I just worked, worked through Melbourne at, you know, the restaurants at the time that, you know, so Vitamond, but this is going back a long time when it was still in Carlton, uh, interlude with Robin Wickens, which was on Brunswick street. And then I spent a lot of time working for Andrew McConnell at originally at 312, but I ended up working at 312, uh, a little bit of time at Cumulus and uh, Cutler and Co as well. Andrew is a, a an icon of well Australian dining, not just Melbourne. What, what was it like working under him? Yeah, working with Andrew was, I would say, like the formative kind of experience of my apprenticeship, or even like yeah. There's still, I think the the way I think about food now is is informed by stuff I learned from Andrew just just about like cooking for people not cooking at them and stuff like that do you know does that make sense like like you don't whenever you go to an Andrew restaurant like everything everything's always delicious and you know just really like not not getting carried away with like he's he's it's not like he's not aware of trends and stuff and it's not like they're these like crazy throwback restaurants or anything, but but I think it was a really good education in like cooking cooking for people, which was which was good good thing for a young chef to learn. <laughs> you spent some time in Europe as well. Uh, can you tell us about uh, your time over there and what it was like in those kitchens? Yeah, it was so mostly I worked in the UK I worked in a restaurant called Long Clume, which is not super well known here, but it's it's quite well regarded there. Kind of two Michelin stars and, and it's been voted the best restaurant in the UK and stuff. It's but it's it's very different it's it's a very different environment there. I think it's a lot more it's a lot more hierarchical there. It's a lot more 
structured, kind of top down. It just has a different energy. I think I struggled a little bit as well because one thing about Andrew is he can be quite what. And, and again, this is going back a while, but he was always super generous with his time with like younger chefs, and he, you know, he's got a lot of young chefs now. So I don't know if he sees all of them as much as he used to, but <laughs> um, you know, he he was quite generous. Like he'd kind of give you enough rope in terms of figuring things out for yourself and stuff like that. Whereas like Europe, and it's not like one way is wrong or, or, or one way is right, but it was, it was a lot more like, you know, you do things this way, like, like you dice things this way to this, you know, there's when you, when you go to, dice up a jelly for dessert you know you break the ruler out and stuff like it's a lot more it's a lot more structured in that sense like there's there's just no not a lot of like room to express yourself i guess is what i'm saying which again is fine and you know people aren't coming to long Clum so i can express myself so i'm not i'm not saying this <laughs> like i'm not i'm not suggesting that 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 should in fact be how it is or anything, but it, it's I guess it's interesting. It's just interesting the way different people run a kitchen, I guess. And and you know I learned a lot, and it was a super interesting time, and uh, yeah, kind of managed to go to Spain a, a little bit and see some stuff that's happening there, and that was good. It is good being closer to everything. How did you end up in Sydney? I finished and with Andrew. I I kind of when I left Cutler and Co. It had been kind of more than three, maybe three years, maybe more than three years that I'd worked for him, and like I kind of felt like you know that was I'd probably I'd probably you know, done my time with Andrew at that point. Uh, I went to America for three months and kind of blew all my savings. Um, just just going around like same thing, doing doing stages and eating out and seeing stuff and not not really having any firm idea about what was going to come next. And then uh, Tuli Look, who was at Claude's at the time, who I knew not well, but kind of through a friend of a friend just asked me if I'd be interested in taking a job at Claude's and moving to Sydney. And I, I didn't really have anything else going on. I didn't have any other ideas and I'd always been a, a fan of her cooking. So I just said, yes, I didn't put a lot of thought into it to be honest. And it's been, it's been 10 years now. So I kind of thought like, Oh, you know, whatever, I'll just move up and I'll probably be back in Melbourne in a year or something. And it's been, it's been over 10 years now. So, well, uh, Claude's has a fascinating uh, history and is one of the most influential restaurants in Sydney. A tiny little kitchen and up and se- up up and down sort of uh, restaurant upstairs and downstairs. What what was it like working with Julie Look and um, in that kitchen? Yeah, it was really it was it was it was great. It was good. It was um, again, it was different, very different kind of coming from Cutler and Co. That was this big 15 or 18 people in the kitchen and doing 130, 140 people a night at a high standard, but really like 
doing doing numbers to kind of coming back to this like very small personal space. Uh, that's actually where I met Un, so that's how small and personal it was. <laughs> um, which was a nice a nice change of pace, I guess. And uh, I was quite fortunate that Chewy had the trust to kind of let me start taking over the menu a little bit. And so that was that was the first time I'd done some menu work with Andrew at Cutler and Co and stuff and but only on the pastry side. And then Claude's was kind of I ended up getting promoted to head chef and that was it's the first time I really had the opportunity to think about what you wanted to put on the plate and you know what what it is that you're trying to say, what it is that you're trying to express to the customer. I'm sure I'm sure early results were mixed, but you know, the more experience you have in situations like that, I think it's does help does help further down the line. You did some pretty interesting things while at Claude's with Truly Look, including fill the restaurant with uh, soil. Uh, tell us about that experience. What was that like? Yeah, that was wild. That was, I can't take any credit for that. That was that was Chewy and Chewy and Jordana, uh, uh, an artist called Jordana Macy filled the filled the restaurant with soil. Uh, yeah, thinking back, absolutely mental. <laughs> Super cool though. Tell tell us about that evening and the food that you were doing and what what the idea was. The food was the food. The food didn't really change, but it was it was just wild to like come come to work every day in an in an art installation. I guess it's not something it's not something you you get used to over two weeks. Um, yeah, it was really cool, super memorable. Uh, so the whole the whole restaurant was blacked out and filled with however many tons of. It was like a a, a literal foot of dirt in the in the dining room and then the the art the actual piece was amazing i can't i can't remember how it worked but there was like a couple wires and lights and the the kind of energy that's contained within the dirt lit up the lit up the lit up the lights and it had this like really eerie glow it was it was it was amazing and and yeah, to eat in that was, or just to be in to be in that space for two weeks was really cool. And then they had to haul all the dirt out, and then you clean everything, and then you realise why people don't fill their restaurants with <laughs> however many tons of dirt because it's <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Claude's did close, and you went on to do Moon Park, but eventually you also. Um, with the same team with with Ned, uh, you opened uh, Paperbird in uh, Potts Point. T- tell us about how that came about and what you were doing there. So Paperbird, we Moon Park was great and and you know did did well, but we I guess we felt like we were outgrowing the space a little bit. It was it was quite a limited space and it was upstairs and there was no foot traffic and so on and so forth. And then, um, David McGuinness, who is the owner of Burke street bakery lived around the corner and was a regular customer. And 
he was kind of talking to Ned about, you know, what I think, I think we might've announced that we were going to close at the end of the lease. Um, and so everyone knew that it wasn't, it was going to close in six months and pe- people would say, what are you, what are you doing next? And we, we explored a lot of options. We looked at a lot of different sites. We looked at Barangaroo. We looked, really like did the did the full tour of potential sites in Sydney. Um and then David McGuinness, who is one of the owners of Burke Street Bakery, was a, a regular customer and he was like if you're interested, you know, we have a bakery at Potts Point that is huge and restaurant sized and it's not really something do we want to keep operating the way we're operating? Would you like to have a crack? And so we just, yeah, sort of thought it'd be something interesting and something that we could, uh, yeah, we tried doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of ideas thrown around and it didn't work. (laughs) That one didn't work at all. Uh, but, yeah, I guess yeah. They they can't all they can't all succeed. Tell us about your cooking now. You've um, gone from sort of McConnell and really fine dining and uh, working with Julie Look to such a dramatic change to Korean and now the food of Tel Aviv. Tell us about your approach to cookery and how it's changed from when you were a lot younger. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I get that would drive me now that not, not it sounds stupid to say, but like just flavor is, is the most important thing. Like it has to be, has to taste good. It has to be delicious. Do you know what I mean? Like it used to, I think when you're young, you kind of get caught up in like, you know, is this, and again, 15 years ago, like is, is this molecular enough? Does it have enough, you know, does it have enough, techniques on it does it does it need a foam does it need a sphere or something and then you you look back on all that stuff now and you're like oh jesus christ like (laughs) like some some pretty some pretty weird things were served to a lot of people for longer than they should have and uh, the stuff you see i still think maybe some of the you know, things are so trend-driven. I think some things, sometimes the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, you know, like there's, it's like I said earlier, I guess, it's about cooking, it's more about cooking for people than at them. I think the older you get, you you realize that it's more about cooking for people than, than cooking at them. It's it's genius and, and more about your, your night out, hopefully. Well, I think that's some good advice, Ben, and um, one that a lot of young chefs could probably take on board as they build their career. Uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. 
Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.